Welcome back to Soul Back. This is the RB Podcast. So we decided to take a week off this week because we brought in a special guest. We have Bob Robinson from the RB production duo, Tim and Bob. He joined us on the podcast and man, he gave us so many stories about our favorite artists, our favorite albums, our favorite R&B songs from the 90s and the 2000s that I felt like we wanted to put the spotlight and the attention solely on the segment and interview that we did with him. So we're not going to have our regular banter, but man, there's so much great information here that I'm sure you'll be all right for this week. But anyway, grab your popcorn and your soda, because here we go. Like I said, every week we try to bring in someone special, someone who has brought soul back. And Ed, I'm really excited about this one. This man is responsible for a lot of our favorite hits, including to me is So Into You. Um, one half of the legendary R&B production group, Tim and Bob. We have Bob Robinson. Bob, what's going on? What's up, guys? How are you? Chilling. We having a good great. time. Cool, man. Thank you for having me, man. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, as Tom, as Kyle kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, you are responsible for some of the songs and albums that have really shaped and defined our R&B fandom. But before we get started, we always like to ask our guests, which R&B albums influenced you? So the floor is yours. Which R&B albums really helped shape you as a fan and then maybe even influence your sound going forward? Wow, man, that's such a hard question because, um, man, it's, it's so many. <laughs> it's I would have to break that down into eras because, man, so many influences, you know, going back to the early 70s stuff with, um, like, the Isley Brothers and Al Green and, like, a lot of those guys. I mean, and even to be completely honest, and I know this is an R&B podcast, but a lot of the influences uh, in our music came from outside of R&B, just keeping Mm -hmm. it real with you guys. Um, But that's the thing that makes doing this whole music thing wonderful, is you can take inspiration from, say, for instance, you can take inspiration from a Paul Simon song and make an R&B record with it, like, that's the beauty of um, creating music and writing songs is you have the ability to transcend barriers, but bring a product back to that very genre. And so, um, yeah, but, but to answer your question, I would say to answer it as accurately as possible, I would say definitely Isley brothers, man. Um, their, their sound, uh, from so many different standpoints, their music just did it for for me, uh, me personally. And I got to be honest, like Tim is the one that really turned me on to the Isley Brothers, like catalog, like not so much the singles that everyone was hearing on the radio, like you're between the sheets and all that. He the first one that really took me like, nah, man, listen listen to this album, listen to this whole album, listen to this, listen to this. And I was like, whoa. And that's when we first started, going back to when we first started producing together. So I got to say the Isley Brothers, man, um, you know, from that era. But as far as if you want me to be more current, pretty much anything Teddy did was, mm. like, 
we consider that the gospel. <laughs> Anything Teddy did, like the guys, the future album. I mean, there's so much I can say about that one album alone. But um, Teddy, another heavy, heavy influence. Um, of course, anything Jam and Lewis did, as you can probably hear in the songs that we did in the past, anything Jam and Lewis, we, we always patterned ourselves after those guys and so um so it was kind of like a melting pot of all those things i just named those are the, the things we would sit down when we would write and do those songs like they don't know or stuff like missing you or um any of those songs that people love that we did in the past we would literally kind of take all of those elements you know jam them had a certain way they they cut their vocals and their backgrounds were so like thick and lush, and the way they would have certain um, certain notes in the in the harmonies sitting still, but then they would take a melody and move it across the notes, and it created this certain type of cadence and certain certain type of tension within the song that it just made it like. And we always said like. Whenever, you know, we met Jam and Lewis, that would be the first thing we asked them. How did you guys get your backgrounds to sound like that? So mm. it, it was a, it was a tons, so many uh, influences in terms of R&B that, that went into the music we did. So I hope that, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely. No, you nailed, you hit that. But Ed, I love that Bob mentioned Teddy Riley as one of, his influences growing up and and Bob I got to tell you Ed right here he is the biggest he's the diehard Keith Sweat number one fan and to this day he still raves about Keith's debut album so Bob I'm gonna pass it to you just so we can make Ed happy what did you love about Keith's debut because that's that's a classic right there man I'm glad you admitted it's a classic first of all I, I actually saw Keith Sweat in concert for the first time maybe two months ago, and it was him, it was the Isley Brothers, it was, ironically, it was Teddy, and um, I think it was Blackstreet that night. Yeah, it was Blackstreet, and then it was uh, a couple other artists. Keith killed it, man. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if you guys ever seen Keith Sweat Live, but his show is insane. Like, no, every song you know. is like, Oh, that was the joint. Uh, then they go to the next one. Oh no! Like every song was like the, the entire arena went crazy. Every every single record, and so um, it was a different vibe than the other concerts because every song that he sung represented a specific moment in that era. Like it was crazy, man. So, but man, make it last forever. Right and wrong way, man. Those are still those will always be classics, man, and for good reason. Simplicity, great melodies, instrument instrumentation is like those things will never play out. Those things will never get oh those are those are uh they don't they don't have an expiration date. Those those qualities in music like you know, anytime you throw a live instrument or something, that extends the life of it. That's that's my belief. Uh and so, uh, but yeah, that Keith Sweat record, man, come on, it's where do you start? I mean, even <laughs> I, I want her, man. Like the way Teddy was like swinging his 
the way he was playing the keyboard, he had a hurt, had a certain like swing to it. Of course, New Jack swing, of course. But even then, he just had this certain way he he laid back in the track with his production on certain things, man. Like, I mean, Teddy, man. And and the other thing that was amazing about Teddy, and I'm not saying he was the first producer to do this, but he 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 made such an impact the way he did it was he made doing slow songs cool. Like when we first met Dallas, uh, his assistant at the time was like, and Dave was the guy that ran everything at the studio. But when we, the moment we met, actually before we even met Dallas, we had to go through Dave. And that's the first thing Dave said, don't play no slow records. We don't want to hear no slow records. Play play some up tempos. And we was like, and we were prepared, we were like, but we was like, man, these cats don't do slow records. Are they crazy? <laughs> that was, that's what we was thinking, man. And so um, that's the first thing Dave said to us. And so we played some up-tempos and stuff. But, but yeah, man, Teddy made doing slow songs cool because his slow songs felt like up-tempos. The way they yep. knocked and the bottom they had on them and the snap they had on them. It was like Teddy's ballads felt like ups and mids, and I, and I, you know, and so, and Keith, Keith Sweat album, that first one was a, a prime example of that. Kyle, you know, we so. could just wrap up the podcast right now. This is already <laughs> the best one ever, dog. <laughs> no, no, oh, we've we got <laughs> we've got so much history to talk about. Uh, Bob, when I spoke to you yesterday, we had touched on. Dallas Austin and and you just talk, you just mentioned Dallas you know during that whole yeah. part but you know Dallas did an interview recently and he was talking crazy about boys men but we don't really have to get into <laughs> that part but what I do yeah. love is that you and Tim your names got mentioned in it and and it's sort of in a weird way highlighted the work that you guys did on that boys to men project because people may have forgotten but Ed. Talk about what Tim and Bob brought to the game early on when when they first came out. What did you see? It's weird. I think that when we look back at R and B and we talk about those major names from the 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 um, boys and men's and, and the Monicas and those those mid nineties, early nineties trendsetters that go on to kind of push the genre forward, even into the two thousands with Cisco and what he did, is they brought a they took a I would say I wouldn't say that these were like artists who had found themselves yet. They were very, very talented. They were just finding themselves and growing into their careers. And Tim and Bob were able to present a sound that would help them not only find themselves but define themselves. So not only were they mm. able to be like, All right, this is a song for me, this is gonna put me over, but this is a song that would define my career and legacy going ahead of time. So, um, I mean, tell us, Bob, how was it working with these future legends at the time and how you were able to sit down with them and create a sound that would go on to define their careers? Man, first of all, thank you for those kind words. Wow, man. I appreciate that. (laughs) It's real. It's real. I appreciate that, man. But um, I would say, and, and it's interesting because that's something that I think we were we were in a we were aware of it, but we were in a, to a degree we were subconsciously all the people that we would work with. Like when we first worked with Monica, she was she was twelve um, on that Miss oh. Thing album. 
She was 12 when she cut off. Crazy. Crazy she, she was 13. 12 sounding she like that. She turned 13, like, right before her album came out, from what I can remember. But when we first went in the studio, and we were the first ones to take her in because when Dallas first um, signed her, that's a that's the thing he did. He was like, okay, because he was busy on I don't I forgot what he was working on at the moment. Um, or he might not have been because that because uh, Dallas when we first signed with him, he was kind of like, nah, I won't I won't say a depression, but he was about to produce with this. He was about to have a production partner named Randy Rand who came from the whole Jamin Lewis uh, camp. He was from Detroit, but he came from the Jamin Lewis camp. But Dallas was about to produce with him, but right before they were about to team up, the guy got killed in a in a motorcycle accident. And he was already, no. like, doing records, and he had did some stuff with Johnny Gill. He had did a few things. And so Dallas was, like, in this kind of depression when we met him. And he was like, I'm just not creatively, I'm just not on that page right now. I'm just going to start giving you all, all my projects for the, for the moment. And so um, that was the first conversation we had with him after he heard our music. And so, uh, so anyway, he, he put us in with Monica, and we did, like, out the gate, we did, like, 10 or 12 songs. Just wow. get her acclimated to the studio, how it works, how the process works. She was 12. And so, um, but even then, while we were working with her, we it was kind of like honing into this sound that was like the drums was or hip-hop. The melodies are very pop. Her tone is kind of re- reminiscent of Whitney, um, but still she's this young you know, very, very urban, you know, uh, girl from Atlanta. And um, it's interesting because she was so mature for her age and she she was very comfortable in talking about, you know, things that was talked about on the album for, from a 12-year-old's perspective, you know. And um, so it was, it was really interesting making that album. But, and vocally, she sounds like on that album is just as good as she sounds now. You can hear the slight difference that her voice matured, but she was essentially the singer she is now. She was essentially that singer when she was 12. And so, but while we were doing that album, we were kind of focusing on melodies, pop melodies, um, nothing really dark in terms of chords or chord progression. That's why probably none of her songs on that album were in a minor chord. Um, so, and then we were focusing on, like I said, uh, very light melodies, light keyboard sounds, pop, kind of, kind of like what a, a pop edge to it on the stuff that we did. And then Dallas came in with the, you know, with the banger with Don't Take It Personal, um, and just the way Dallas wrote for her. For, for instance, that particular song, even though I think that song was written for someone else, written from someone else, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, by someone else. And I think Dallas kind of changed some of the things around, but that kind of set the tone for how she was going to be going forward. So when you look at that, and and then when you kind of look at the other songs on the album, you know, the the content of the songs, melodically, musically, what was going on, you know, it was a very well-rounded album, and um like say for instance when we did one twelve, it was kind of the same approach, but we took more, almost like an approach, as if, well they were actually gospel singers, and so we were very much 
fans of this gospel group. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but they call Commission group out of group out of Detroit, and that's where yep. Fred Hammond comes from. And so mm-hmm. we kind of wanted to make 112 like an R&B version of Commission. So when we were in the beginning, kind of doing their first songs and taking them in the studio. Um, you know, we were kind of like kind of honing in on more of that kind of sound. Still, kind of the same elements with um, that we did with Monica, and we did these projects very close in proximity in terms mm-hmm. of time. I would say we did those albums within a year of each other, and um, right. but the 112 album was more almost like a gospel, not so much gospel, but gospel in terms of the harmony structure was a little bit more gospel. Um, and a little bit more sophisticated than the Monica vocal arrangements we did, but um, so we, that was that was what it was like, kind of for for one twelve, and then ironically at the time we were working on Mister, and you know Bobby V comes from the group Mister, you know they yep. had yep. that hit back then, Black Bear Molasses, but we were working on Mister back then too, and so it was kind of the same thing, some banging beats. The melodies, the core structure remind you of Midwest pop songs. Like we, a lot of our melodies were heavily influenced. Like I was saying earlier, even though we were we were known for doing R&B songs, our influence was from pop records, man. Like because where we grew up, Peoria, Illinois, is a small town right in between Chicago and St. Louis, right right pretty much in the center of the state of Illinois. And um, at that time, there was no urban radio in our city. And so the only way you heard urban radio was you had to connect the cable from your TV to your stereo. This is old school right here. You have to connect (laughs) the cable. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You have to take the cable from the TV and connect it to your stereo. So that would give you a, a wider range of radio stations. So you you could pick up some Chicago stations, maybe one or two of the Chicago stations, but otherwise all you heard was the Carpenters, Kenny Loggins, uh America, Carol King. That's that's what we grew up on, man. Um and even me, like I, I started playing the organ in church when I was eight. And Tim's father was in bands and stuff around town. And so so Tim was getting a different influence than I was getting. Um, like, in my in my home, like, we didn't even, honestly, we didn't listen to a lot of R&B music. But in Tim's home, it was the polar opposite. Because <laughs> his dad was in a, a band that was actually very similar to uh, Earth, Wind & Fire. Like, they had the horn section. Like, they was, you know, a full band. And so... Um, but that I think that's the thing that actually worked to our advantage was our different influences individually. And so, like I said, like, when me and Tim linked up, that's the first thing he did. He was like, you into the Isley Brothers? I was like, yeah, I heard In Between the Sheets. He's like, have you heard the other stuff, though? I'm like, yeah, a few of them. He's like, man, what? And so that's when <laughs> I really went through that whole catalog. And then I, and I was just like, whoa, man. And, and it was interesting because I did the same thing with Tim Tim wasn't familiar with commission. And back then, like, any of these R&B groups, like whether it's Boys to Men, Jodeci, Blackstreet, 
any of the groups from the 90s, Shy, any of those guys, I can assure you are influenced by the group commission. And so um, any singers out there know exactly what I'm talking about. And so, but Tim at the moment when we met, he wasn't familiar with commission. And I was like, what? You aren't familiar with commission. And so, so then he had that experience from the gospel side. And so, um, so, and again, these were things that, that worked so much to our advantage, you know, um, because all those influence, influences would come to aid us, whoever we worked with. And so, um, so to go back to your question, that's that's how we approached a lot of different artists at the time. Um, I'll try to give you another example. Um, even even with let's say Bobby V, when we did the first album, it was 2005. But our approach then was, you know, wow, no one's uh, ever messed with any Asian samples, Asian sounds, and Tim had sampled some stuff off of the last Samurai film with, with Tom Cruise. It's funny because mm. we actually ended up having to pay handsomely for one of the Bobby V songs uh, that was sampled. I think it was Tell Me. Yeah, we, we had to pay handsomely for that sample because uh, we, we thought we were going to be able to get get away with not having to clear it, but wasn't the case. But anyway, <laughs> uh, when, we, when we did that, that album, it was that was the approach. Banging drums, Asian samples, let's go or Asian different sounding samples, different sounding programming in terms of keyboard sounds, a lot of atmospheric stuff. We've always been to like been into like atmospheric sounds and you know, a lot of things you generally don't hear in R and B. A lot of drum and bass, we know when drum and bass was popping at the end of the nineties early 2000s, we was heavy into that. Um, so we would always apply all these different uh, musical influences in music. And so Bobby V was the same. Uh, we 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 knew we wanted to do it. We, we already knew, like, as far as the melodies, and when you get that in contrast to the, the, the hip-hop drums, the Asian-sounding samples, and then here comes some pop melodies, you know, that probably was influenced by a James Taylor song. So when you mm. meld all those things together, like that's when you start realizing, okay, this is something not many people are doing. <clears throat> Taking pieces of genres, just pieces of it, and knowing how to apply them within the context of an R&B song. Um, so I think that was, if you have to say, or ask what was the secret to our, our success, I would say that would be the closest way I could answer that. But, yes, that's what we would do when we would work with an artist, try to give them their own style. Um, we we knew a lot of people, still a lot of people don't actually use guitar in their records, which I find fascinating, you know, because radio loves, like I said earlier, radio loves live instruments. Radio will always play songs with guitars. Radio will always play songs with piano. That won't ever change. And so, um, so yes, that's that's what our approach would be with artists and and giving them their own sound. And it's funny right. because I would think we didn't even realize that we were doing that to probably years after we had been producing. And then we would look back like, whoa, this is actually the pattern that we kind of did all along the way. 
So, um, yes. Nice. Man, I'm so glad you brought up the 112 debut album. And and what I love about that project on the songs that you guys did, none of those songs sound like each other. Come and See Me doesn't sound anything like Now That We're Done. Oh, yeah, Ed, that, yeah. that album is a five-star classic, Ed. You wow, know, I you have know been... What? I've been talking about this album for a long time, Bob, on this podcast, but it's one of my all-time favorites, and I love that you were able to, like Kyle said, the sounds are different but similar enough that it completes the package, and that's why I think that debut works so well. Wow. You know what? I'm glad that you have brought that album up, too, or posted that, because I hadn't listened to that album in a long time. And so when I saw that, I was like, man, let me go listen to it. And I was listening to, matter of fact, I was listening to what you had posted, the uh, the Y interlude, right? Mm-hmm. And I had, I, man, I hadn't heard that interlude probably in over 15 years. Wow. So, um, and I was listening to it. I was like, wow. And I, I we, we just, I guess the best way I can put it is we've always tried to be, innovative, you know, um, as innovative as we could, but still keeping it commercial. And that first 112 album, you know what was crazy about the, the 112 album was, um, and without, without, because I, I definitely learned something from the Dallas interview with, that certain things just don't need to be discussed in, <laughs> in a public right. form, but, but, I'll just say that in the beginning of the 112, like we we had put those guys together because how it happened was our barber at the time, his name was uh, Courtney Seals. He goes by Bear. Everyone in, in Atlanta knows Bear. And so uh, he was cutting out. This is why we were signed to Dallas because when we first was getting in the flow of everything and, you know, we hit Dallas, we were like, hey, man, can you hook us up with a barber here? And he was like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're we we have one of you know one of the homies come by and hook y'all up. So that's how we first met Courtney. And so after a few weeks of him coming by cutting our hair, um, we were starting to get antsy because we was getting on big projects and stuff like you know obviously the boys and men stuff. And when we first signed with Dallas, the first thing we did was Tina Turner. A lot of people don't know that. Um, the I don't want to fight. It was from the What's Love Got to Do with the soundtrack. Yeah, we didn't, yeah ori- we didn't do the original version of the song, but we did a remix. But that's actually the first song that we did that hit radio was the remix huh. we did to Tina Turner song. So we came out the gate like on some pretty big names, obviously. And so um, when when Dallas, oh, I'm sorry, when we were doing all these projects and wasn't getting singles as far as albums, like for instance. Uh, Monica, we didn't get a single off of there. Um, it was a bunch of projects. I can't even remember a lot of the artists' names that we were doing all these projects back then. We would get like three, four songs on the album, but we wouldn't get a single. So we go to Dallas, like, man, you know, how come we start getting singles? He's like, y'all need your own group. Y'all need your own artists. He said, y'all should put a group together, man. Y'all put a group together. If I like them, I'll get them signed. Or I'll find them myself. I was like, cool. So this is around around the same time our barber was done by cutting our hair. So he's hearing the conversation between us and Dallas. So one day he was like, "Hey man, I'm telling you, man, I know some talented singers, man. If I if I can start bringing you guys some, just bringing y'all some singers, 
would y'all do the group? Would y'all can I can we do the group thing together? I was like, absolutely. So he started bringing singers by. Yeah, we like him. Yeah, he's okay. Oh, he's dope. He's dope right there. Yeah, let's remember this cat right here. And he would he would bring a singer by probably once a week to the studio. So a lot of people don't know this too. A couple of the guys that were originally supposed to be in one twelve was actually one of the couple of guys in, in um Jagged Edge. Wingo mm-hmm. Wingo was a step away from being in one twelve. Like he was at the studio every day. We was I think a, on a couple of the early demos, Wingo was actually singing on the demos and him and Q and one twelve were best friends anyway, so you know, it's when I think about all these things it's crazy to go back and, and talk about it. But anyway, so um when we when we had the four guys that are in the group now, that's when we started, you know, developing because they were dope writers anyway. From day one, like I think one twelve are probably some of the most underrated writers in business. <laughs> as successful Agreed. as they've been, Agreed. super underrated as writers. They pretty much wrote seventy percent of their first album, and so. uh so anyway, we were helping them, developing them with the, you know, song structure, how to, you know, just how to work what they could, their raw talent. Because we, we all were green. We were all super green when I look at it now. But we at least were around Dallas every day, and we were absorbing so much knowledge from him on production, um, radio, how to get on the radio. So we immediately started applying these things. So we put one tour together. And so uh, Dallas, it was interesting. He he didn't really, he just wasn't feeling him enough to sign him initially. And the, we kept developing him for like a year and a half, close to two years. And then um, we had came out to L.A. for some business. As a matter of fact, we worked on Boys and Men. And then when we got back, that's when Puff had a lot of interest in him. And, and the way it went down, it was just... You know, it was it was like I'll just say that it was uh, not the way we would have wanted it to go down, but we were able to work past that. But initially, we actually refused to work on the guys, and so they initially had Devonte do their first album. Oh wow! Puffs didn't like the album. He didn't like the way it was going. It was Devonte. It was a few other people that they had put him in the studio and they couldn't get them to sound the way. Puff had heard these demos that we had did sounded. So I never forget the day Puff called me. He was like, yo, man, y'all got to be on this record, man. We got to make this right. Y'all got to be on this record. And so then I I hit Tim. I told him, I said, man, Puff just called me. Let's talk to Dallas, man. So we talked to Dallas. And Dallas was like, because Dallas was upset the way everything went down. And he was like, I'm going to leave that up to y'all, man. I personally... I'm gonna leave that up to y'all. He he was Dallas was actually hot over it because he saw us developing those guys over two years and then the way it went down. But anyway, we all were, were able to reconcile that situation and we went in with them and then that's we went up to New York for like a month and that's when we started. The first song I think we did with them was Not Over Done. And it's crazy because it's crazy these stories go from one to the other. Like three of the songs that went on one twelve first album were actually songs that didn't go on Boys to Ben's two album, mm. and so because um, we had there's so many songs on the two album that 
and and at the t- at the end of the two album was around the same time we were developing we're in the beginning stages of developing one twelve so we knew Wanye because you know Wanye knew that we were developing this group rather and so Wanye actually met us in New York and we did now they were done um, in a little while and we did a few other songs with them and that's how we started the album that ended up coming out and so uh, but yeah man it was. It was it was it was interesting back then, but that's how one twelve came about because Dallas wanted us but we went to him like, Man, we, we want some singles, man. How can we you need your own artist? And so, um, that was one of the first lessons we learned. And so he and ironically, we did have a single on one twelve, but it wasn't it it didn't make a lot of noise, just being honest. It was Come See Me, which was still one of my favorite songs on the album. Um, but the album was hugely successful, and that was like their fourth single or fifth single on that album. So it was pretty much maxed out at the time. But but yeah, that's that's a little inside history behind that and um, how One Twelve came about. But it's it's so many it's so many stories that I tell that story that I think of or other things that were <laughs> going on going on at that time. Like when I think about, for instance. When we were working on the album, Brandy, you know, was she used to come to the studio with us because uh, that was shortly after she came out. So she was just sitting in the studio hanging out. Um, who else? Like uh, somebody else was actually sitting in the studio when we was recording 112. And I was like, wow, if people knew that, it was crazy. But anyway, all these little bitty side stories man so much history and wow it's it's so it's so cool to actually sit here and talk about it because you know it's not <laughs> often that i get the chance to sit down and and remember all these things and go over them so it's, it's pretty cool to talk about absolutely man appreciate you for sharing these stories too because man as diehard r&b fans we love you know even with the dallas interviews even though it, you know, there was a lot of negativity in it. Just <laughs> right. as people that lived through the '90s and love the '90s, it's always just awesome to hear stories that come from that era. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Dallas, what I want to do—I mean, not Dallas, sorry, Bob. What I yeah. want to do here is, um, you know, I want to touch on some of the records that you guys have done, some sleepers that Ed and I think um, are great. But before we do that, Ed. I'm going to say this. One thing I loved about Tim and Bob's production is that, you know, they had the big singles, the career-defining singles, but they also had those sleepers, Bob, like I mentioned, like Conversate by Case, those records that aren't necessarily the big ones, but when you get that album, because back in the day we actually bought albums, you would end up on that song and you would just repeat it over and over because it was the highlight. Ed, do you know what I'm talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about. And to this day, that's why I still love albums so much. Y'all know I still, if I can cop the physical CD, I will cop it. Because to me, the single was the entry point, but like the meat and potatoes are those album right, cuts. Yeah. Like those are the ones that resonate with a brother. And when I think about the ones I love from Bob, I remember, Kyle, I don't know if you remember this. This was maybe a year or so ago. We had Bobby V on. And one of my favorite songs from 2005 I don't even know if you remember this one, Bob. Want you to know me from Bobby's mm, debut. Yep. Love oh, wow. that joke. Love oh. it. 
I was like, why y'all ain't made this a single? Love this joint. So it's those little songs like that that just, to me, that's what makes an album. Yes, I totally agree, man. Wow, that was a sleeper on that album, man. want you to know me. That's crazy. You know what? Another one I love from that album was... um, it's crazy. To be honest with you, a lot of the sleepers actually were ones that didn't make his album, but you can find wow. them on YouTube. It's, there's stuff on YouTube that we did that I I don't even have copies of, man, but there's a lot of Bobby V stuff unreleased that's on YouTube that was meant for his first album that was like, you know, but it was just, we couldn't, we were in such a zone on that album. We finished the album in two weeks. Really? It was done. It was done. The recording process, start to finish, was done in 14 days. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm, that's not an exaggeration. Like crazy. Okay, I'll I'll say this with the exception of I think two songs, which were like basically some demos. With the exception of maybe two songs, he came out here. We finished this. We finished that album, and I want to say like 10 days, and then we called. Shaka, you know, who's running uh, DTP at the moment, was like, Shaka, we done, man. It's like, nah, there's no way. So then him and Luda, <laughs> him and Luda and Jeff, you know, Shaka's brother, the other manager, they managed Luda. They all flew out, and we played everything, and it was like, what? And so then <laughs> the crazy part was Slow Down was never supposed to be the first single, but this is how it happened. Because um, we initially had cut some songs with Bobby. That's why I was saying, like, with the exception of two or three songs, we had cut, and we had kind of, like, did a couple meetings, but we wasn't really getting any traction in the meetings. It was like, yeah, he's cool, but he's cool. What else you got? And that's what we was like, wow. So one night, uh, and at the time, this guy, uh, DJ, uh, PJ Butter was... He was uh, DJing, and he had this segment in the evenings here in L.A. where he would play unsigned music. And so one night, Tim was like, hey, man, I'm just going to just run this up to DJ, um, DJ Butter. We'll just see what happens. So then the next day, he was like, hey, man, the phones was lighting up, man. Y'all should come through tonight. I'm going to do it again. Just We'll just see what happens. This is slow down. And now this is after Bobby didn't have nothing going on. Um, he didn't. This was before Luda came into the picture or anything. Um, you know, just was nothing ha- nothing was happening. So so PJ Butter played it a second night. Phones, were, and this time we're in there in the studio looking at the phones lighting up. Wow, who is this? Who is this? This song is dope. It's such a different sound. Who is he? What does he look like? Where is he from? And so then, because he's mentioning Melrose, a lot of people thought, initially thought he was from L.A. And so... This this goes on for maybe a week or two, I think, and then it started really just catching fire. And at the time, PJ Butter's wife, which was I can't remember her name, she was a DJ during the daytime. So she ended up playing it. I think he was filling in for her her segment during the daytime or something because from what I remember, she was pregnant and she was out on maternity leave, so he would fill in for her sometimes during the day which were like the peak hours. And so he started planning, playing it during the daytime, and that's when it really went crazy. So then, like, maybe this is like a month or two later, and it's like the number one record in L.A., and everyone's like, who is Bobby V? 
what does he look like? Who is Bobby V? Who is Bobby V? And it was crazy because he didn't even have a deal. And so at this at this point, that's when we was like, okay, we started um, putting a plan together. And um, this again, this is like what was this 2005? So it was about 14 years ago. So from what I can remember, these this is how it went. And um, I just remember at the time we were we were about to separate from Bobby V. We were about to actually run the R&B department for Disturbing the Peace. So we were already oh, wow. talking to Luda about that, and we've been friends with Luda since before he was rapping. So that was he mm. was family to us anyway. Back to when he was just DJing in Atlanta, um, you know, when he got out of college, he was Chris. That's when he was Chris Lover Lover, you know. And so, uh, but anyway, we were already talking with him about running his R&B uh, label. He was basically going to do an R&B label. He's like, man, y'all my guys. I want y'all to do it. It was like cool. So when Bobby started popping off, that's when, you know, we was the three us, Bobby and Luda was like, man, maybe just, maybe, you know, he should just sign Luda. We do the album. We run it through DTP. It's already set up. And so that's that's how the conversation started. So anyway, fast forward to six months later, the song is still popping in L.A. It's not even playing anywhere else. And that's when... Luda signed him. We went in the studio, completed the album, um, and so we're and so we're back here in a meeting in L.A. And then Shaka was like, "Hey man, we need to stop playing to slow down." Because now, mind you, keep in mind it wasn't playing nowhere else, so Shaka wasn't fully aware, like on a daily basis, how fired the record was out here in L.A. It was like neck and neck with, with uh, yeah at the time from Usher. I think mm-hmm. yeah, it just came out. And it was like one day his song would be the number one song of the day. The next day, yeah, it, would be, it was like back and forth out here in L.A. And so um, so then Shaka was like in a meeting. He said, man, we got to stop. Let's, let's, I'm going to start calling these programmers, telling them to stop the record because that's not his first single, man. That don't need to be his first single. That's that's cool that it got everybody's attention, but we need to go with uh, Give Me a Chance. Shaka really wanted Give Me a Chance. To be the first really? thing that one featuring, yeah, that was going to be this. So Shaka, he called the stations here, like you know, put a stop on the record, and they told him, "All right, we'll stop playing it, but you crazy if you stop playing this record, man. <laughs> it's going too crazy." And so ultimately, as far as that, Shaka was like, "Okay, I, I'll stand down. We'll roll with it." But "Give Me a Chance" was that's the one that Shaka wanted to be the first single. So it, it was like. Radio forced it to be the single, you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, man, that was that was crazy to go back and think of, and and then that's when it went for ads, and that's when it went all to all the other stations, and then it came out when it was released as a single. It was it was number one for four weeks, but imagine had it been catching all of those earlier spins four or five months leading up to that when he wasn't even signed. It was crazy. The regular was like playing in L.A. for at least four months before he got signed. From what I can remember, oh. it was it was hot for a long time. It kind of had like fizzled out a little bit in L.A. by the time it was released as a single. And it still was number one for a month on the charts. And so, um, yeah, man, that was 
that was pretty crazy how that all went down. But that's yeah, wild. Slow, down, slow down was like accidentally the first single. <laughs> yeah, man. It all worked out though. <laughs> it yeah, it really did. It really did. Yeah. yeah. And I know we were talking about sleepers on that album, but there's so many. I feel there's so many sleepers on that album, like um, like the one joint. Um, I was gonna say one girl with love. That's a sleeper. That's what you did. You say one girl to love. Yeah, yeah. That's the one I was gonna bring. I was gonna say the one and didn't have a beat in it. Cause we did a few songs like that with Bobby with no beat in it. But yeah, that one girl to love, man. Because obviously that's us. You know, paying homage to Jam and Lewis and that. You know, mm-hmm. just the piano strings. You know, when Jam and them did Tender Love. So a lot of times that's what we would do too. Oh, let's do a record on let's do something that's like tender love, just piano and strings or just guitar and strings or just guitar and piano. So that's another thing we would do. Um we would take songs that, you know, um had a certain impact and we would wanna get it, do something with that feel, something that felt like that. But um but yeah, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, Bob, we interviewed Tim a while ago, and he was telling us about the vault, all the unreleased stuff that we've never heard about. Um, and, and before we get into that, I, I do want to give a quick shout out to you guys for producing the song "Tell Me" by Destiny's Child because that brought out a different flavor to the oh, group. Wow, and I know man. you guys had a huge part oh, in uh, wow, developing crazy. them, but you know, Tim was telling us you guys have. A, a demo version of Into You with Brandy's vocals on it. Tim was telling me about how you guys have a bunch of unreleased Destiny Child songs. What else do you guys have in this vault, just so the fans can get excited and maybe even mad? <laughs> Man, you know what's yeah, crazy? Jealous. And he might have mentioned this to you guys, but something that's crazy that never got released, and I saw the dat the other day in my uh, my little suitcase I have at home with some old dats in it. Man, we worked with Dre. The crazy thing was, this was 97, from what I can remember, 1997, Thanksgiving. We were at Dre's crib having Thanksgiving dinner, and then we went right into the studio, right down the hall from his dining room. He had an SSL sitting right there. It was crazy. He had... What his vision was on that album was he was going to get other producers to produce every song on him. It ended up, and this was for the the, um, the, the detox album it was, but he it never the album ended up changing so many times and it never came out that way. But that was the initial concept for the album, Dre getting produced by other producers. We was the first ones that he went in the studio because I never forget when he first went in the booth. He's like, "Yo, man, this is crazy, man." This, I mean, this is really my first time that another producer is producing me, man. This is crazy, man. How y'all feel right now? And we were just like, wow, man. Of course, we were honored, but the coolest part, well, not the coolest part, but one of the coolest parts is Jay-Z wrote the rhymes. Like, he literally had reached out to Jay-Z. Jay-Z wrote him two songs, but it was the tracks that we did. When I say these two joints were so fire, man, (laughs) Crazy. Jay-Z wrote the joint for Dre. People don't even know it. One was called Malibu Dre, and the other one was called, 
Hey You. Yeah, those were the two songs, Malibu Dre and Hey You. And those were recorded in uh, 97. Yeah, man. Wow. 97, Crazy. Dre, Tim and Bob beat off of the original And, and Jay-Z wrote them. Oh, wow. <laughs> fire, been on history. <laughs> you got yeah, history. Because at the time, cause, and how we linked up with Dre was because um, a friend of ours, he was from the East Coast, but he moved down to Atlanta, and, and we met him through our manager at the time, Nate Smith. But his name was Big Chuck, and Big Chuck knows everyone. And so... When we got with Big Chuck, he was like, oh, man, I'm running. Um, this is when Dre first set up Aftermath, and Big Chuck was running Aftermath. He's like, I'm linking y'all with Dre ASAP. And sure enough, we started doing a lot of the R&B stuff. We did pretty – anytime Dre had an R&B artist, he, he would call us, yo, man, I got this dope dude, man. I'm Can y'all come out to L.A.? Or actually, was we living out here at that time? Because a lot of the stuff we did, well, all the stuff we did with Dre was out here in L.A., but when we worked with him, we hadn't yet moved out here. But um, So, yeah, he had a, an artist named Ruben, an R&B artist. We worked on Ruben uh, when he had Don Robinson, when he had uh, Truth, Truth Hurts. We worked with Truth. Um, so, yeah, man, we always, you know, been linked up with Dre and doing a lot of R&B stuff with him. And so it was, it was an honor, you know, to, to have done that with him, even though it was never released. The fact that Jay-Z wrote some records, two songs for Dre, you know, I mean, just that concept is crazy. You yeah. know, two icons. So, so yeah, that's that's one of the biggest sleepers, like, unreleased in the Tim and Bob, you know, library <laughs> that exists <laughs> um, that I can think of. But uh, if I could think of anything else, definitely a lot of Destiny Child, Destiny's Child stuff, um, tons of Bobby V stuff that never came out. You know what else? We did some dope records with Tank that never were released. And mm. they weren't released because it's funny because they're all over YouTube right now. Just go to YouTube and put in Tank and Tim and Bob. You'll find pretty much the whole album on there. I don't. I still don't know how those songs got on there. But basically, Tank was signed to the same label at the time that Joe was signed to. You know, the the singer JoJo. Um, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And it was crazy because Barry Hankerson, who was it was his label, that's Aaliyah's uh, uncle. And you know, Barry Hankerson, he used to manage R. Kelly. I think he used to manage R. Kelly. But anyway, we were right in the middle of working on Tank album. We had did this other pop artist that was signed to the album. And Barry Hankerson just woke up one day like, I'm done with music. And shut down oh, wow. the label, let the artist go. And we was like seven songs deep with Tank. We was like, and they were smashes. Smashes. If you haven't heard them, when this interview is over, just go to YouTube and put in Tank, Tim and Bob. And I'll go ahead, I'll give you a hint. Go to Lost in You. That was the first, that's. That's probably the, one of the sickest songs we've ever done. We did a song on Tank called Law. I'm definitely doing that. Trust. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, man, it's so many. It's it's crazy because we probably have more things come. I mean, they didn't come out. More things be unreleased, meaning they get all the way to being mastered, and then didn't come out. Like there was this one project that Rosie Perez. 
brought to Dallas when we were signed to Dallas, and it was a girls' group, R&B group. They were called 5 a.m., but they were Rosie Perez's group. They came to Atlanta. We did the whole album. We did over half the album. And these girls were dope, man. The songs were dope. They did a video, everything, mastered the album, and then that came out, got dropped. That happened on a few occasions, man. Like, And that's just part of the game, you know. It's just it just yeah. happens, so it's, that's why a lot of times you it's it's an adjustment. And, and early in our careers, man, we would if we heard a label wasn't using a song we did, we was really like, "Yo, are y'all crazy? You're not gonna use that? <laughs> did y'all really listen to that?" We really we would take it personal, man. And um, you know, we eventually learned that you have to let go, man, and you have to do your work, let go, and move on. Don't be attached to that. <laughs> I know I, that's what I learned. I can speak myself on that, but um, but yeah, man, is because you you become attached to the song. They're like your children, you know. And um, when someone when someone is like, nah, I'm cool on that. Or say you playing the song for them and you spent three days working on it. They hear the first two seconds. Go to the next one, and you're like, because right. well, pup pup do that in a minute. Anybody that knows pup will work with him. Playing songs for him two seconds into the intro. Go to the next one. Go to the next one. Next one. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he knows because he knows what he's looking for, you know. And so, um, but yeah, man, so many unreleased, so many. And it's, a lot of times I'll be I'll be listening to or going through my computer and I come across some songs. I'm like, man, I wonder if I should post this. Like the stuff we did on Mary J. Blige never released. It was sick. Um, wow. I can think of so many um, Nas. We did five, four or five joints with Nas, never released. We did a lot of stuff that, that did come out with Nas, like the Joe um, Get to Know Me. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. are familiar with that. Very familiar with that. On there. And so, um, but yeah, we did like four or five joints with Nas, man. Never, never got released. And, they actually, I will say, they actually wasn't actually completed. They were more like ideas, but they were sick, though. A couple of them were completed. Yeah. But I just thought of another nice. sleeper that um, people may not know that that we work with game. We had, um, ironically, V. Bozeman. You familiar with V. Bozeman? Yep. Yeah. Yep, we know her. She was in a group. I can't remember the group's name. Excuse me, but... Um, we were working on this group, and she was the lead singer of the group. And we were about to have them signed and everything. They actually had did a song on a soundtrack, but we were working on a deal for them. And it, it ended up not working out ultimately, but um, we were in the studio one day out here in L.A., and um, Game just poked his head in the room. like, yo, what's up, fellas? We was like, yo, what's, what's up, bro? And then um, he's like, y'all, y'all Tim and Bob. I was like, yeah. I was like, we're big fans of yours. He's like, I'm a big fan of y'all, man. Y'all, y'all, y'all dudes is dope, man. If y'all ever need any, any, you know, any need any bars, man, just let me know, man. What y'all working on right here? And it was this one of the songs. And so he's like, let me check it out. And so, sure enough, he ended up getting on the song right then and there. And then um, another song we ended up doing with him. Uh, I can't remember the artist's name. Please forgive me, man. We 
it's just so many people when you're thinking of songs and, and artists. Like, I can't, there's another artist, and this was about 15, 16 years ago. There's another artist <laughs> I worked on, and he, and he did some bars on, and it was like, um, what song was that? I can't remember. But, and it, again, as I'm telling these stories, I keep thinking of more stories of things that didn't come out and like, oh, man, I got to mention this. So my mind is like scrambled right now, but with a <laughs> bunch of stories that I'm tempted to go into, but we'll be on the phone for three more hours. That's <laughs> all good, man. Yeah, man. I hope you know. I hope you know with all these stories that you're sharing with us, all these songs that haven't come out, people are going to be sliding into your DMs asking for them. Uh, I'm, right, right. I'm going to be one. I'm gonna be you one of them because I want to hear that even... Dre. I want to hear that Nas. I ain't gonna lie. Yes. <laughs> I'll be honest, man. Um, if if out of respect to that artist, I probably wouldn't wouldn't do it. But if I personally don't mind sharing the music because it's what what harm is that? You know what I mean? But um, yeah. like one time, I was tempted to to post a piece of the Mary J. Some of the stuff we did with Mary, but I was like, no, nah, I don't want to. Definitely don't want to get a call from Mary getting cussed out. <laughs> no, I know you don't. <laughs> but um, but yes, I did have another cool story that uh, this is really quick. But again, one of those things that people if people knew they would be like, "Whoa!" We were um, working with Will Smith on the um, uh, Men in Black Two soundtrack, and so that particular week we were at the record plant in L.A. And we had a lot of times when we was, because at one point, man, we had the record plant for probably a year straight every single day. Like, everybody knew you come into the the studio, the first room to the right, that was the Tim and Bob room. So uh, we, we had two sessions going on this particular time. We were working with Will in one room, and we were working with um, gospel legend Karen Clark in the other room. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Clark sisters of Karen Clark, but... Oh, very familiar. Icons in gospel music, icons, absolute icons. So, um, but we didn't know that Will was coming to the studio at this particular time. So we're in the studio, and um, Will just walks in the room into our session with Karen Clark, and her and her daughter, and her daughter is like a really famous singer now, Kiki Sheard, Kiki Mm -hmm. Clark Sheard. She was 10 years old at the time. But it was her and her mother, we were, and, and me and Tim in the studio, we were uh, kind of listening back to what we had did the day before because we weren't expecting Will for, like, several hours later. And Will just walked in the room. What's up, guys? I was like, yo. And so Karen literally, she seen him and started bawling, crying. Wow. Mm. And so Will seen her, and he was like, oh, my God, wow. And then by this time, Will's um, – his right hand, Omar Rampert, Omar came in too. Like Omar was like, Oh, oh my God, whoa, hold on, hold on. Omar started bowing to her, like, Oh my God, what an honor. What an honor. And then Will was like, I'm honored and she just bawling, crying, like, Oh my God, you're Will Smith and you're saying you're honoring me. <laughs> so it was this moment. There was this really cool, amazing moment in the studio. And then another part of that story is um, we had, uh, so we're talking, all of us are sitting in the room talking and, and Will is like, wow, I'm so honored to meet you. You know, man, if my mother was here right now, he started talking about if his mother was in the room right now, she would be tripping and, 
you know, Karen was like, oh, my God, you have no idea. I'm so honored to meet you and my daughter and, wow. And so they took pictures, and Will was like, yeah, let me hear what you guys doing. So we played them all the records. And then um, he was like, hey, if you, need, if you want me to get on one of these songs, just let me know. So we actually, it ended up not happening. But she was like, oh, my God. It was just such a cool moment. But another thing cool that happened in that session was uh, Kiki actually was demoing because this particular day, um, Karen just wanted Kiki to, like, start getting used to the studio. So she was like, hey, guys, why don't you – let's have her demo. After you guys write a song, let's have her demo. I was like, that's a great idea. And so um, she demoed the song. She nailed She nailed it. And so Sylvia Rohn had just happened to call in at the time when we had did it, and Karen was playing the, the demo, you know, uh, what do you call it, the demo uh, lead vocal down. So she could hear the song over the phone, so uh, Sylvia Ron could hear it over the phone, and that's how Kiki got a record deal. That's how Kiki got a record deal that day. Wow. Sylvia said over the phone, "Crazy, she's a sign artist," and that's where Kiki's career started. It was that? It was that day? It was the same day that Will came to the studio. It was crazy. That's so, a crazy uh, story. Yeah, man. There's all these amazing moments, man, and that I'm so happy to have been a part of and continue to be a part of, man. And just like, wow, people could see this, man, who I'm in the presence of right now or what's going on in this room right now. So many moments, man, that just, it makes it all worth it, man. It makes all the unpleasant parts or it makes all the, you know, like when I think about, you know, me and Tim, man, we went, we went into Atlanta, we drove into Atlanta, on December thirty first, nineteen ninety two, with about $60 each. We didn't know anyone. We didn't have anywhere to stay. And we made, we did okay for ourselves, man, you know. And so, uh, so all of, and even before we even got to that point where we had the courage to, you know, be willing to make that sacrifice to, to, to go to Atlanta, because I think when we left, uh, you know, to drive there, I had like $80 on me. And I think Tim had like maybe $120 on him. That was it. But we didn't, we wasn't worried about a thing. We was just like, oh, if it don't work out, we'll just come back home. You know, so willing, but when, you, when you're willing to make those types of sacrifices, you get those type of results, you know. And to and take so, that uh, kind of chance, because like, look at just, Two brothers with a few dollars in their pocket revolutionized R and B for the next twenty years. Just <laughs> a chance. Look Thank at that you, story. Man. Thank you. But we did it, yeah. hey, amen. And so uh, that's what I like to think about now. When I, in terms of you know, set an example for my kids of what legacy, you know, what what was Tim and Bob's legacy. That's what I think about now. You know, because here we are. What we haven't worked together for maybe five years or so, but that's what I focus on now. Um, you know, we had a good run. That's how I look at it. And so, right. um, yeah, you know, and you know, we continue to to do things. I'm sure he's doing his thing or whatever, and I continue to do my my thing or whatever. And it's a different different chapter in our lives, but you know, I'm, I'm very proud of what we did and very grateful that we. Uh, 
we we were kind of we knew we were we had something early on like okay we got something special and so I'm I'm glad that you know the the world felt the same way and and to this day like it's crazy because like some of these songs are more popular now than they've ever been like so into you is more popular now by far than it's ever been even when it came out and went number one the song wasn't as popular as it is now mm-hmm. and that was 20 years yep. ago same thing with they don't know um the song is more popular now like you know missing you the song especially now with the the, the Wyatt and Lucci record, like it's it's breathed new life into that that song, and so like I think about those type of things, and I'm like, I'm just grateful, man, and just grateful, man, and um, it feels good to go back and listen to those things, like me sitting and listening to some of the one twelve album yesterday. I'm like, whoa, okay, this is nice. I'm it's it's almost like it was songs I've never heard before because I haven't listened to them in a while, and um. But yeah, man, it's it was it's so good to listen to those records, man, and to you know I think I actually went and listened to something else that we did. Too. I was like, whoa! Oh yeah, the Monica album. I went and listened to the Monica album. I was like, because I hadn't listened to her album probably in over fifteen, twenty years. Wow! You know, and so um, yeah, man. So it feels good, man. It feels good, and I'm grateful, and I'm glad that. <clears throat> We're able to touch people, man, just doing something we love, you know, and that we still have the opportunity to do that. So, just sure. very, I feel very blessed, man. I feel very blessed. Yeah. So, Bob, you know, final question for you. We're almost out of time here. Appreciate all the stories that you've shared with us. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be loving this, but we got to find out what you're working on today. Of course, you had My Man by Tamar, that was a huge single. Grammy nominated. What what else is going on for you right now? Uh, thanks. Well, right now, um, uh, speaking of V Bozeman, I'm working with her. Um, she actually just booked a film. See, the film or series, a big series that she just booked with opposite Ti and um, the other actress. I can't think of her name. It's um, Robin Thicke. Uh, X Y S I can't think of her name, but she just booked a really nice uh, filming situation with with that project, and so I think right now she took a little time off recording, but we were right in the middle of recording. Um, so working with her, um, working with Ron Isley, it's interesting when I mentioned uh, the Key Sweat concert earlier in the interview, I was actually going to the concert to meet with Ron. And so, um, so working with Ron right now, and um, what else? A um, couple of new artists. Uh, oh, Cody Shane out of Atlanta. I'm not yep. sure if you're familiar with her, but she's making a lot of noise. ATL, Cody Shane, young, innovative. Uh, she's a superstar. But um, working with Cody right now, I'm actually manage a couple producers, I co-manage a couple producers as well. One in particular, a guy named Valley out of ATL, sick production, dope artist. Um, so we got some cool things popping off. So yeah, man, between that and 
I, I spend a lot of time mentoring uh, young producers and writers almost on a daily basis, and um, and I enjoy it, man, because I, I think what better way to to pay forward all the, the the knowledge that I've gotten along the way. I mean, coming up, you know, under Dallas, man, you know, pretty much a genius. People don't know. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then to have mentors like L.A. Reid on a daily basis and, and Daryl Simmons and Babyface and Keddy, and it's become friends with these guys that we grew up idolizing, man. And to, like, be friends with these guys now is, like, crazy. Like, there's still times where I'll be in the studio with Babyface or something, and I'm just looking at like, man, this is Babyface right here, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting there working with Babyface, man. And so it's, it's, I love it, man. And, you know, it's just, it's just a blessing, and I'm completely honored. But, but yeah, I'm just – I still try to keep myself busy, and then both my kids in college now, and so – it's cool to see them in their lives now. My son is doing very well uh, with his music. Um, he's, man, it's, I don't even play guitar on him. When I go, whenever I see my son, when he comes in, I put my guitar down. I just like sitting and listening to him, you know, and he's very into the production and all that good stuff. My daughter, she's how I keep, my daughter is the one that lets me know what's going on in music. She always knows who's going to be that next dude. Like, she was the first person to tell me about Kodak Black, like, four years ago when people hmm. hadn't even heard of him. And my daughter is, my daughter's 18. She's like, damn, you got to listen to Kodak Black. It's a lot of cussing, but just over, overlook all the cussing. <laughs> she talking to me when she was 13. And then, like, and she always listening to lyrics and songs. Like, so my daughter, it won't shock me if she ended up at a label running an A&R department or at a film company because she's super creative. But anyway, my keeping me young for sure, so I'm enjoying my time. I'm spending with them at this point in their lives. And so, um, um, so right now I just try to keep a good balance on everything as far as time because, man, probably for the first 20 years it was all music, music, music. Now I can't do that because music. And then you, you look on the other side of it and your kids are growing up being like, well, man, hold on let's get this thing back in balance. And so right. you start to see things a little different and you start to utilize your time more uh, wisely and um, appropriately. And, and you, and you still, you know, you're still productive. You still can be productive and everything. You don't have to, like right now, I don't have to burn the midnight oil every night. Like we did, you know, 15 years ago. It was unusual to come home before five, six in the morning, but now it's interesting because those are the hours I actually like to start work. I like I like right. wake up at six and go right into my my studio and start working. Six a.m. That's my favorite time to work now. You know, so it's a little different. I'm a little older now, so I'm making those adjustments, but I'm enjoying it, man, and um, I'm happy, man, and, and still taking things a day at a time and. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But that's what's going on with me these days. And yeah, man, I'm still inspired. And the simplest things in life inspire me to to keep going forward and doing music. And 
that's that's what I'm doing for the moment. <laughs> we'll nice. see where I that's we'll awesome. see where I end up. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, Bob. So you know we're out of time now. We appreciate you for joining us. You just got to got to do us one favor when you're putting out these new projects, and then we'll definitely let you go. Uh, you got to bring back bridges because uh, R&B songs don't have bridges anymore, and Ed is very sad about that. Oh wow! I'm, wow. I'm very annoyed about this, Bob. I've been heated, so help a brother out. You're right, been, man. Because when I was listening to the K song yesterday, I, when the bridge came in, there, I was like, "Whoa!" Because I had I hadn't heard the song in so long, and I literally didn't know where the song was going. So when it went to the bridge, I was like, "Oh, nice!" Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> bring them like, back. I didn't have nothing to do with it, but. <laughs> so, yeah, man, it's, you're so right about that. That's that era when there was actually bridges and songs, you know. So that is so funny, man. But yes, yeah. but I, I I just want to say thank you guys for having me, and um, it was a pleasure. And let's do it again because there's no so doubt. many more stories, man. Oh my god. But yeah, we're gonna um, we're gonna have to bring you back. <laughs> congrats to you guys on what you're doing, and and. Um, I wish you both continued success in what you're doing. Yes, sir. Absolutely, Bob. Listen, we'll always support what you've got going on, so just keep us in the loop, keep us posted, and uh, we're always there for Absolutely. you. So, best of luck with everything. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for the support.